Hi, and welcome to the first episode of The New Agora. I'm Matthew Nanos. I'm Matthew Brown. Um, and Matthew, don't you think it's fitting that for the, the first episode of The New Agora, we are in ancient Athens? We are, yes. Discussing the death of the king of the old Agora, might we say? Absolutely. We're going to talk about the death of Socrates today. The death of Socrates, uh, Phaedo. That's the one. And today we are joined with a classmate of ours, a guest. William, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Buongiorno. <laughs> Always want to say that. Yes, as I've been alluding to, I'm Italian, Italian English, um, third year university, last mentioned everyone here, and uh, excited to be on and get cranking on some play too. That's... William, why don't you tell everybody um, what part of Italy you're from? Oh, I'm from Milan. Milan. You hear that, guys? Milan. Italian yeah. on our hands. Underrated Italian city. Everybody visit Milan. Everybody go. Now, because it's a celebration, we have vino. Cheers, Cheers. everybody. Cheers. Cheers. And we have fromage. Cheese. Cheese. And we have bread. Cheers. And it's Greek wine, Retsina. It's very good. Have you tried it? I have, yeah, it's very nice. It's very nice. It's good. Good stuff. Um, if you're not watching the video right now, because you're just on your phone, I recommend you change that and find us on Spotify or YouTube and watch the video because it's more exciting and it's better. Right, William? Sure, sure. You got to see the wine and the crackers. It's yeah. very important. And if it's not possible, we're sorry for the chewing and the slurping. <laughs> and you get to see these two handsome guys. Which is a pleasure that I am afforded. Um, shall we? <clears throat> shall we? Let's let's get into it. As we alluded to, we're going to do Fido, but as the precursor to Fido uh, is Mino, and I think it's worth worth discussing that a little bit because it bleeds into Fido, right? So, um, William, I I think we've declared you the resident expert on Fido <laughs> on, me. on Mino. Sorry, so. Um, Please, please help us recap what uh, what Mino is all about. All right. Well, the main thing we need to know about Mino that, you know, again, shows up in Fido and is expanded upon is just the theory of recollection. So um, basically, Socrates introduces uh, this theory that knowledge is essentially recollection. Not, you're not actually learning anything. When you, when you come to know something, you're just recollecting it from a past life where your soul was... Um, well, it doesn't mention Mina, but he was exposed to the forms when he died. Um, and yeah, so I suppose this comes from Mino's paradox. That's where this question arises, where um, the the dialogue starts out as a discussion on virtue, trying to find out uh, if virtue is teachable, and then basically just evolves into epistemology. And the turning point is Mino's paradox, where um, when it comes to knowledge, and it's... Uh, there's a dilemma where if uh, someone's trying to know something and uh, if he, he cannot search for what he already knows because if he knows it, he wouldn't be searching for it. And he also can't search for what he doesn't know since he doesn't know it, so he doesn't know what to search for. And uh, yeah, that's the Mino's paradox. And Socrates answers this with his theory of recollection, saying that, we, that basically Mino is uh, giving a false dichotomy between knowledge and ignorance. And uh, in reality, there's something in between, which is recollection, and uh, learning is recollection. Mm. 
accessing the past knowledge, innate knowledge that we all have. And he displays this with the, the example of the slave, where he makes the slave solve some complex geometric problem, which we won't get into, uh, just by questioning him and mm. uh, seeing basically what his uh, beliefs on of geometry, his very limited beliefs, because he's a slave, obviously, but he knows, you know, numbers and lengths, and seeing how that entails to find out a specific area. And um, yeah, we said last time it's uh, the example's a little dodgy because uh, Socrates does basically, I mean, give the slave the answer a lot of points. He mm. just says, you know, well, this is what you want to say, isn't it? So mm. he's not exactly the slave isn't coming to his own conclusion. But I think we all understand the point he's trying to make that sure, sure. in theory, uh, learning is all uh, individual. It's not uh, teaching is technically impossible mm. from Socrates's point. It's uh, it's just learning. And in fact, Mino doesn't uh, learn this lesson. That's what Socrates is trying to tell him. But after this whole discussion, Mino just goes back to directly asking Socrates, so is virtue teachable? Tell me. Whereas Socrates is trying to, trying to show that you have to come to your own conclusions, come learn it through yourself. Uh, mm. The teacher can only um, give prompts to the student. You know, ultimately, well, learning is, is, uh, comes from yourself. That might explain as well um, a bit of why Socrates did what he did throughout his life, which was to go around and speak for free, not to charge anyone, um, and to, to engage in people in conversation so that they would go through that process of coming to realizations on their own rather than being taught. So maybe from his perspective, that's why, why he conducted himself the way he did. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, the nice thing about this whole theory is that it's not only epistemological, quite abstract, but it's also very practical in terms of when you want to learn something, you kind of got to know that it's it's up to you it's mm. you know, teacher can only push you in the direction that you have to actually uh, run the mile you can lead a horse to water kind of thing mm. yeah. nice and when we're, when we're talking about recollection um socrates is literally saying that that in mina right that we literally have this knowledge and in in the present life that we are that we that we had this knowledge in the past mm. and in the present life we're literally and learning something is just recalling that fact that we already knew. Yeah. Right? But I, we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording, right? That we can think about it in terms of, like, um, this, the, the, our, instead of, like, knowing specific things, we could think about it in terms of our capacity to understand and uh, know things, which perhaps the uh, geometry example where he's kind of guiding the slave boy through um, these difficult problems can help illustrate it because the slave boy is not really, like like you said, Socrates is basically pulling him, him in one direction. Yeah, he asks very leading questions. He's asking very leading questions, but at the same time, the slave boy is able to comprehend what's happening. And so, like, that ability to comprehend what is happening mm. and the problem must come right well because cool, the, the example is <clears throat> off of a basic square and so obviously even someone who's say a slave knows what a square is right and you can sort of just by looking at it figure out that if you were to double it you double the length of the sides and, and the rest of it so it's like there's some in intuitiveness to the problems he's being confronted right. with it isn't super complex yeah. geometry yeah well, actually to rephrase what i was saying before it's more something like you know a teacher can show you the answer but you have to do the understanding you can't give the understanding to the student. right 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 
Right. Um, and having that experience in logic a lot quite frequently. Yeah. <laughs> you just don't know how to get yeah, to like, the answer. answer like, yeah. Great. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Mm. No idea how to get there. Um, and so it's, it's clear, right, that if, if we're recollecting something from our, our past, right, that has to be knowledge that we have through, through non-sensory, like knowledge without our sensory perceptions, right? Mm -hmm. Is that? Yeah, yeah. So basically, well, this comes up in the Phaedo as well, but Socrates would say that empirical evidence um, empirical knowledge isn't actually knowledge because, I mean, the sense, your, your sense data isn't actually what the real world is like. The real world for him is the forms. So on its own, empirical evidence can't provide knowledge, but it requires the uh, innate reason from the soul hmm. to give the knowledge. And we were talking about this when, before with the Leibnizian example, very closely tied to rationalism, I'd say, but where... You know, for example, it's, he would, you would just say that one plus one equals two is innate knowledge because while empirical data can show you, you know, one apple, you see one apple, you see one other apple, you see two apples, you know, so that would be the empirical account. But uh, the suggestion is that uh, the suggestion that one and one, one apple and another apple, one and one in general will always make two. That requires an extra leap, which uh, would be innate knowledge. Right, that's, that's, that, that includes a an abstract relation between all things rather than just an apple and an apple. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Like it's generalizing kind of empirical yes. evidence into law. Related to the problem of induction as well. Yeah. Mm. The, the leap from constant conjunction to um, laws of nature requires a an extra faculty and ability that you, know, you just simply can't get from empirical evidence alone. Mm. And I, I think based on this discussion, we should... We're gonna. We we said we we're gonna discuss um, the three arguments that Socrates has for the immortality of the soul, and one of those arguments is through recollection. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it would be prudent now to talk to tackle the recollection argument. Sure. Are you okay with that? Yeah. So um, he you know he he. This is on um, 73, by the way. Thank you. Um, he talks about Socrates starts by saying that we're able to, um, to recognize or know things through um, this kind of association with either similar or dissimilar objects, right? So, like, um, the example he gives is, right, if you see a, um, if you see somebody's uh, coat or you see somebody's handbag or whatever, you might then, from that handbag, come to associate or recall the person who's that handbag, hand, who's had that handbag. Mm -hmm. Right, um, and so he was kind of explaining this. So that's that would be uh, things that are different, I guess. Right, um, or I guess maybe that would be dissimilar. I don't know. I'm not really sure to be honest. That's wrong. Right. Keep going. But uh, 
So then he has things that are like, he goes into a discussion about things that are equal, right? And so you have the concept of equality uh, in general. And so he says, when you see two sticks, right, um, that you may perceive to be the same, to be equal, um, it works in the same way with that like cloak or that handbag of that person that that led you to recall that person. So let me make that more clear. When you see two sticks uh, that you perceive to be equal or at least look equal, mm -hmm. what you're doing is it's reminding you of the form or the principle of what equality is that you knew in the past. Right. Yeah, this doubles as a, just an argument for the theory of forms as well, because it would just say that uh, there we have a concept of equality in our heads, where it means for two things to be equal. But in reality, in, in the act, in the physical world, in, well, in the world of our senses, at least, as Blake would say, there is no actual equal thing. Everything is very, you know, there's always going to be some slight difference. So equality doesn't right. actually exist. And so when we see two sticks that are almost equal, we we see that it's they're similar. We see something that's trying to replicate equality. It's an approximation of equality, and so um, yeah. and so we so, know the the concept of equality from because we wouldn't be able to know that it's right. an approximation of equality if we didn't have access to well the forms the ideal the idea equality, of what yeah. equality would be. So how does how does that idea apply to the example of uh, a bag, a coat, and the person that it reminds you of? So what where, where's the what, where's the equality? Well, because he state the the cloak in the the bag example is demonstrating that how how that process of recollection works, right? That it's simply it's it's the way are we process things and and recall certain things. So we don't we're able to recall things from approximations or associations. Uh, that we've had in the past. That we've had in the past of things that are not exactly that. So we don't exactly, so the two stones are not exactly equal or not exactly equality, but they are associated with that equality. And since we knew that equality in the past, right, the two stones that are roughly equal help us to that equality the same way that the two that the handbag and the cloak that are not that person can help lead us to think about or recall that person mm. interesting and, and the the bag or the cloak that's being referred to is does belong to that person it isn't a different bag that's equal to the possession right but that reminds you of them it's the it's their actual possession and it's observing so if i saw your coat right just on a chair somewhere and saw that chair that coat reminds me of of athen because it looks like athen's coat right. maybe it is athen's coat but you're not seeing athen you're just seeing my coat right right it's an association and i'm i'm, rec I'm recalling you from past experience exactly by observing the coat and the equality in there is the uh, equality of the uh, association from the coat and the you previously in my experience. So I, the you I have in my mind when I see your coat 
isn't you exactly. It's almost equal to you in that I'm recollecting it. Is that is that where the equality is in that example? Because well, but I think because I'm struggling to see where the well, the two sticks one. I get, I get that. I can yeah. see that. But the well, the equality is not quality is just one form. Yes. No. I know. Yeah. Right. So the the cloak and the bag and the coat to me is not related to equality. Right. Okay. It's just demonstrating how. So that's more on the side of recollection than equality. The two sticks is focusing on the form of equality. The cloak and the person is about recollection. But we we understand equality through like the the same way that you recall me through my coat mm-hmm. and my bag and whatever you recall equality through looking at these two sticks the form of equality yes the, form the ideal of equality, equality yeah. the ideal of which, equality yeah which doesn't exist the universe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay fair enough yeah yeah i just wanted to just hash that out because it's not a i think immediately intuitive thing to grasp mainly because i didn't intuitively grasp it well yeah um cool so that's that's his uh argument um for recollection um and do you want some more wine by the way i'd love um, you know what they say in in uh, Greece instead of cheers? No. Yamas. Oh, yamas. No, I did not. Yamas. That means to our health. Yamas. It's the yamas. Uh, what is it in Italian? Uh, well, it's Umbrian. You, you just say... It's very weird. You say chin-chin, actually. Chin-chin. 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 You know what's every day? Um, okay. I actually think it would be helpful to, to read a little bit. Um, just because. Where from? To, from, uh, 75A. Um, because he says, in this case, we must have known the equal before the time when we first upon seeing equal things came to think all these are seeing to be like the equal but fall short of it and then uh, one of the interlocutors says that's true are you following i am yes yeah do you uh, want me to read along with you I'm, this is a slightly different translation so i might it might become right. confusing so it might all be right. easier if you just read both sides of the okay uh now we also agree that we haven't come to think of it, and indeed can't come to think of it from anywhere other than from seeing or touching or for some or from some other sense. I count them all as the same. Yes, because they are the same, Socrates, at least in relation to what the argument aims to show. Now then, it is from the senses that one must come to think that everything in this reach of the senses both seeks that thing which equal is and falls short of it. What do we say? Just that. Then, before we started to see and hear and use the other senses, presumably must, in fact, have gotten knowledge of what the equal itself is if we were going to refer to it the equal things deriving from the senses, saying that they are all eager to be like it, but are inferior to it. Necessarily, given what has already been said, Socrates. 
he's just like agreeing with Socrates as blindly. That's kind of the way Plato's dialogues uh, work. Now is from the moment we were born that we started seeing and hearing and having use of the other senses. Certainly, right. And we must, as we're saying, have got the knowledge of the equal before these. Yes, in that case, it seems we must have gotten it before we were born. Yes, so it seems. Now, if we have gotten it before we were born, we were born with it in our grasp. Did we know both before birth and from the moment we were born, not only the equal, the larger and the smaller, but also the entire set of such things? For our present argument is not no more about the equal than about the beautiful itself, the good itself, the just, the pious, and as I've been saying about everything to which we attach this label, what such and such is, both when we're asking questions and when we're giving our answers. We must have got the knowledge of each of these things before we were born. Um, so, why did we read that, Matthew? Well, it's an introduction to the uh, concept of the forms, in a way. Yeah. Um, which we've alluded to, so I think we should give a bit more of an account but how does how does this prove that the soul is immortal what if i was following um that if your soul has knowledge of all things because it's had previous experiences and at your birth when the soul uh entered your body at the point of birth or conception or whatever it would have been for the Greeks, um, you acquired the knowledge that the soul had previously again, ready right. for you to recollect it. Right. And so the immortality of the soul, I think, follows from the idea that it was it's not contingent on life, right? So you, you have a soul when you live and you die and it goes off and does whatever it does and then re-enters another life with the knowledge that it had before, ready for it to be recollected. So the soul's going through this cyclical process of yeah, person to person to person to person to person, accruing knowledge, I guess, although that's an interesting question, because is it accruing knowledge if it already has it? And where did it get it from in the first place, if it isn't? Well, see, that's, that's the interesting thing, right? Because Socrates actually says that, like, the soul is hurting and, and is suffering well inside the body, right? It doesn't want to be inside the body. And so in some sense, right, in without the body before this state when it enters into the body it has this pure knowledge and is fine and all well and then because well, i because it, it considers the body a, a kind of um corruption or a, like a dampener on its ability the soul's ability to think or or reason about the forms or about reality in its purest sense and that we have this body that has wants and desires hungers thirsts and all of that obscures the philosophical instinct of the soul yeah, I think this is kind of related to kind of just the, I guess, the curse of philosophy here, of knowledge in general, where it's, mm. you know, impossible to know everything. It's a, it's a, it's, it's an, it's an impossibility. Whenever someone's setting out on the quest to, you know, uncover the secrets of the universe, like, he's destined to fail, you know, surely you can get close, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. So there's kind of this contrast where, I guess, the soul desires ultimate knowledge, but due to our physical limitations is just not going to happen and so i guess that's why socrates would say that the soul is is 
freed and get somebody from the board. Well, he even concludes at one point that um, he says, well, either there is no knowledge, right? There's there's no there's no accruing knowledge or accessing knowledge at all while you're alive, or there's only knowledge after after death. So it's only after you die when that which is your soul can have access to knowledge because there's no state beforehand because of all these like you just said there's a limitation on uh any any endeavor to understand something is due to fail because of the limitations of the body because of the dampening of the i guess the physical prison and plato's socrates's sense that prevents the soul from being able to gain access to knowledge and wisdom mm. which they put which I, um, this is the reason why um socrates is uh because in the Phaedo, his friends, he's been sentenced to death in the Apology, and there's a long time he has to wait. His friends go and visit him. And on the, on the day that he's due to be put to death, his friends visit him, and Socrates is in a really good mood. Right. And his friends are like, what's up with that? Why, like, we're all really miserable here. Aren't you about to die? Are you not, like, anxious at all? And Socrates is like, not really. I'm about to go. I'm he gets a- mad at them for being sad. Yeah, well, yeah. And <laughs> one of his, because from, from his perspective, he thinks that his, uh, he thinks that his, uh, as a philosopher, which is philosophia, right, lover of wisdom, right, that wisdom is only accessible for Socrates at the point after death. It's not possible truly at during life, and that you spend your life as a philosopher preparing yourself for death, so that as a free soul you can gain access. Let me, to let me wisdom. read this passage that comes well. He's after he's already drank the cup of poison. And he's waiting for him to like for yeah, his like yeah, the poison yeah, yeah. to kick in and die. He says, and they're all like crying and they're really sad. And he goes, Socrates, you astonish me. What a way for you all to behave. You realize it was not least for this reason that I sent away the woman so they wouldn't strike the wrong note in this sort of way. For in fact, I've heard that one should meet one one's end in a reverent silence. No, keep quiet and show some resolve. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I haven't got to that part. Absolute giga chat. Giga chat. Very yeah. nice. There's actually slight digression. I would like to hear your opinions on this. Where it's like, I don't know how it would be like for Socrates just being, because he's clearly very sure that he's going to survive this. You know, he's very sure that the, there's going to be a continuation of life after death, or mm. in a certain way. And it's just like to you guys, would you? Could you even have a picture being so sure about something like that? Because to me, that seems foreign. You know, I feel like. Like, the maximum I could get is, like, agnosticism. That's the only way. That's, I think that's the... I can't even get a negative position on that, you know? It's just... I, I feel like What's agnosticism the, is Even the, Jesus was, was like, yelling out in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified. Have you forsaken me? Yeah. Yeah. And Jesus is God. And Jesus is the Son <laughs> of God. Like, <laughs> like, what are we... Socrates more certain than <laughs> like, God. what are we doing here? <laughs> No, but it is it is astonishing, right? That that like, and he and he says, oh, like his final words are, oh, we have some debt that we were supposed to settle with somebody. Can you take care of that? <laughs> yeah, like I could get being so content with death if it's like kind of on either stoic or epicurean grounds, where it's like you know, there's there's no way you can change your lot. This is what happens. I won't be. I'm not afraid of death because it's you know, that's, it's it's an inevitability. It's going to happen. Mm. So there's no point in being afraid. 
but uh, Socrates just has a different spin on that. I mean, he he kind of accepts that, but he's also just like he knows it's going to continue, so it's not even right. a problem. Right. Well, well we, we were having a conversation because we weren't able to record last week, so we, we just had to chat about the Mino and um, while Athen was getting some tech equipment, we um we had a conversation about psychedelics, yeah, and the experiments on psilocybin. The with the people who have been given a um a terminal illness diagnosis, who were having a real issue with like confronting their mortality, this uh, psilocybin experiment where they were given a five gram or whatever whatever the dosage was, um and then I think I think it's something like sixty percent of the participants of the study, sort of transcended their fear of death, and were not only comfortable and okay with it, they were able to help the people in their lives around them get through their own death. So. Um, don't try this at home this is a supervised experiment <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know when there's and the i think we spoke also about uh brian Marescu, uh the lawyer turned uh researcher into psychedelics who's uh publishing a book called the immortality key where he talks with the the topic of the the book is about the ancient greeks uses usage of psychedelics um during their rituals during their sort of uh processes of bringing people to leadership so i'm i'm saying all of this because like to like where socrates has arrived at this point just before his death where he's so certain and so comfortable with it and it's so foreign i mean, i would agree with you right like i can't conceive of a scenario in which i'm not at least a little bit concerned right? yeah like, <laughs> like a little bit a little, a little tiny bit of me is like yeah this might not go the way i think it's gonna go <laughs> but for but I guess I was pointing to that kind of empirical example of and the possibility of Greek usage of psychedelics in their rituals and in their thinking. That that may be one of the reasons why. So yeah, Socrates was tripping before. Like, sure, man. I mean, yeah. <laughs> what, what? I think it's also though a bit different with the terminal illness because when you're yeah you know, when you're on a terminal illness and you got the psychedelics, you know mm. you're going to die. But there's a it's a bit of uncertainty, right? It could be it could be in a week. It could doctor be, could be wrong. Yeah, thing, doctor right? could be wrong, that kind of thing. But Socrates knows like there is no way. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, he's yeah. drinking poison. Like he's <laughs> he's gone. Enough. He's gone for good. There's mm. no there's no uh, no unexpected no time frame or nothing. There's a a great painting, the death of Socrates. Oh yeah, yeah, but uh, the one they showed in the seminar. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, it's in the Met in New York. So I've seen it many times. It's, it's a free museum. Those don't exist anymore, but they do here. They do. Yeah, most of them. Yeah, it's a it's a suggested donation museum, but you know when you're a student, that, that doesn't count. Um, and yeah, he's he's like, has the cup in one hand and he's like pointing up, and all the people are like heads down, and he's just like, I got this, I got this, man. Well, isn't isn't the only other figure in that painting who isn't weeping, Plato? Is he the oh, one that's of, a good he, question. Is he the one at the foot of the bed who's sort of? Sat there with his head hung, so he's like he's not happy about what's going on. But he's everyone else around Socrates yeah. is like pulling their hair out <laughs> and just freaking out. But then there's one guy at the foot of the bed who sort of sat there. I think he's got like a book in his hand, just solemnly looking down. I think that's Plato. I'm not sure. Don't don't cite me on that. But well, yeah, Plato would have been there, I think. Yeah, because he, he was he was the the scribe, the student. But okay. Let's, because you're right, that like the idea that you just walk into death, like actually not just like indifferent, but like happy is a weird, weird occurrence. But let's like try to understand at least a little bit where he's coming from with based on his arguments. Yeah, yeah. Like that. Of course, I think. Um, so, so with the recollection argument, mm -hmm. 
right? His argument is we have this knowledge of the forms, right? Then we lose, we forget it when we enter, the soul enters into the body. And then um, we, we come to see approximations of those forms through our sensory perceptions, right? Um, and those, those allow us to recall into some sense what those forms mm -hmm. are. Keep going. Where, where are you? <laughs> okay. Um, but I know, but I'm distracted by the the krasi. Um, but right at the same time, there's a limit on how much you can recall, right? Because it seems it seems to him that as much as you try. Your, your your knowledge with the soul with sorry with the body that uses the body to gain knowledge is not going to be that that form right that, that you're going to so essentially uh what we see what we hear what we smell uh gives us approximations of what really exists, right? So take this book, for example. Let's just say, yeah. he doesn't say there's a form of a book, but let's say he does. I think there would be, yeah. The theory of form is a form of like anything, which even anything. we haven't invented yet, but it's a form. Um, so, so, right, take this book, right? I see the colors, I see this book, I feel this book, I can kind of smell this book, but my nose is kind of stopped up, so I can't really. Um, and, right, so my perception right now of a book is this. Mm -hmm. And and I can conceptualize in my head right now what a book is because in the past I have had knowledge of the form of what a book is, right? And so by, recall, by seeing this, this right and and feeling this and touching this and maybe smelling this i'm reminded of what the form of a book is so there are, so therefore i can identify oh this is a book because recalling that knowledge but i don't know what it is that a book is i just know that this has some amount or approximation of a book because I'm, it leads me the same way that the coat and the the bag and whatever, right, leads me to, um, to know that oh, there's to recall that it's that person that has that thing. This is leading to me, leading me to recall that oh, there is the book, mm -hmm. right? And I don't know what exactly what that is. And the only right. way for me to get that is to block all my senses and just enter into this world where. I'm bodiless, and then I'll be able to know what the soul is. Yeah, I think it's important Sorry, to what the book hash is. out the theory of form since we haven't quite mentioned yes. it. But like, what uh, what it essentially is, the intuitive argument for it just is that uh, 
every book, for example, using the book example, though I guess the, the best example would be to be mathematical, for example. Like every every instance of a triangle in this world, every instance of a book, they have something in common. Right there. They're all pointing to one thing. And uh well, for the triangle, that's you've never seen an actual triangle, you know. The lines are never gonna be straight, they're never gonna be quite touching perfectly and right. everything. But uh, if we see a particular of a triangle, a particular triangle, we immediately know what it is. There's no, uh, there's no doubt about it. And so that's meant to show that there is a universal triangle, the perfect triangle, which exists in uh, right. the world of forms. And the same with the book. There's a perfect book and there's a perfect color of the book, you know, green. Everything that's green has the property of greenness and, you know, they clearly have something right. in common. Well, well, let's take like beauty, for example, right? Matthew and I both studied aesthetics last semester and 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 in the most simplistic forms aesthetics is the study of what is beautiful right and, and you two are both beautiful men so you know that's twice you've mentioned that <laughs> <laughs> uh, well valentine's day is coming up so you know it's the wine and no more wine for you <laughs> um but you know so by looking at both of you right i i know I'm reminded of what the form of beauty is, right? But I can't say exactly what makes either of you. I'm getting uncomfortable using you guys as an example. But, you chose it. You know, I can't say exactly, right? Mm. Like, we had all this trouble in the class trying to describe, okay, what is it that makes something beautiful? And there's all these arguments and nobody really agrees. Yeah, right? I think this actually goes back to kind of the youth problem where it's like, with beauty, we can always um, kind of show necessary features of beauty. Right. Like maybe, you know, for a painting, there's a kind of composition, kind of foreground, weird, like, right. yeah, you know, technical stuff or with a movie or any, any piece of art, really. But those are, those are not, those aren't, that's not the nature of beauty. That's not what we're actually right. talking about when we say beauty. Those are just like some necessary conditions that show up right. in certain like, beautiful. Like the majority of people who are kind of in their same mind can recognize that a sunset over the water, over the ocean, is a beautiful thing, right? But if you press them on it, most people won't really be able to give you universal concepts of why that thing is, is beautiful that, that can then be applied to other aspects, right? Um, yeah, cause I guess you could go for an evolutionary account with all of this stuff where you say, like, uh, you know, for example, we find nature beautiful because, like, a river or something because it's, you know, a water source and that's where we're... we're, we're we want to spend time around there, and it's useful for us to spend time around there. But uh, I don't think that's only if you have a very reductionist account of beauty, and you say beauty is only valuable so far that it brings pleasure. But I don't think that's quite right. At least pleasure is almost a side effect, I guess, of beauty. You can mm. appreciate the beauty and then also get pleasure from it. And there's also like contrasting things that also produce the um, feeling of like that that lead you to recall that beautiful like feeling um in through them right so like you could have um a beautiful like light and bright sky right um and you could say that that is beautiful but at the same time you can have a dark night and say that that's beautiful and so you can have contrasting things but both of them are 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 beautiful and it seems that like we don't really have a a specific metric that we can rely on through our senses to identify, oh, that thing is beautiful because X, Y, Z, 
right? It's it's just because in some sense we, I mean, you can argue that it's socially constructed, that we know it's beautiful because people have told us it's beautiful and it's been passed down generation and generation and generation. And maybe that is like what the theory of recollection is, is, oh, we just know know these things because people have, our ancestors have said that and it's been passed down. And so, you know, that's where we get the knowledge. But it, it seems more like it's kind of this innate thing that, that humans might have where we just see these like things that one might say is objectively beautiful um, because mainly because everybody knows it's every like majority of people think it's beautiful and there's not really much disagreement. But, um, well, I, on on the um, maybe this is going a bit away from the Greeks and towards the aesthetic, but <clears throat> there's the that idea of the of being in the zone, right? You know, when you're so engaged in an activity that you're that you uh, the flow state, yeah, the flow state, flow state yeah. yeah. Sorry, that's the word I was looking for, the flow flow state. Um, that you kind of lose track of time. Right, and that you get you're so embedded and involved in an activity that the I don't know the particulars of life kind of just fade into the background. And I guess when you think of yourself as being in flow state, you think of yourself as doing something, right? Like whether it's rock climbing, chess, like uh, wrestling, whatever, playing football doesn't matter. But then that can also happen when you're sat watching sunrise or sunset. Or... So what is what is the flow state? Well, it's it's when you're um, it's generally it's a psychological term where it's when you're very involved in an activity. It's kind of like the the best the best place you want to be, the place everyone wants to be when they're working. You know, it's you're so engaged with I, an activity. I think it's a sort of psychological term that encompasses the idea of meaning, mm. like when you're doing something meaningful, right? Like, yeah, that oh, you find meaningful. Yeah, like yeah. oh, you're not you're not like um, thinking about doing the thing. It just like comes to you kind of almost as a reflex. Mm. It's uh, yeah. I'm sure you've had this experience. I think everybody has had at least yeah. When you, like when when you're enjoying yourself so much and you look at the look at the clock and it's been three hours and it feels like it's been fifteen twenty minutes. Yeah, yeah, that's a rudimentary. Yeah, it just as an example. But like, but, but my point was is that that can happen when you're stationary, sat somewhere on a beach or by a river or looking at a mountain, and so you can be in that state while you're stationary, not necessarily doing anything, and still have that experience of. Of beauty, so I don't. So I was kind of a, I was kind of a, a comeback to the the idea of beauty is so, uh, socially constructed. Or I don't believe that. No, 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 I know. I was just, I was just, uh, I wanted to just push back against. It. <laughs> well, I think it, even if we have the, if you have like some explanation for why we find certain things beautiful, you know, with the, it's been passed down to us socially. I think I don't think that necessarily disproves that beauty. Is a thing that's valid. I think it's it's a bit of a genetic fallacy where you you explain the causes of something, but not the the reasons for it happening. Mm. It's different. You like uh, a classic example <clears throat> is if like um you know some people come to believe in God you know because uh, because of uh, you know because they I don't know some random tribe believe in God because they uh, they want to fill in the gaps you know of like uh, they don't know what rain is or storm and so they think God did it right. Um, sure, that that explains like why they think that God exists, but it doesn't disprove the idea that God mm. exists. It's not an argument against the existence of God. And the same with beauty, same. you know. It'll show that 
that's where beauty comes from. But it doesn't disprove the idea that beauty is objective mm. or real in any sense. That's an interesting point. Mm. I mean, I don't know. It is it is a tempting argument that that it's so long as we're in our body and therefore we rely on sensory perception to talk about and speak about and think about and whatever things um, like this book or, or beauty or whatever we're not able to really get to the root cause of what beauty is right like there's no way to know that each of us has is there's a whole thing like that each of us is seeing the exact same thing right when i when i when we both of us see william are we seeing the exact same thing probably not to the to the exact thing right and the same way that when me and you see matthew are we seeing the same thing probably not well and i don't look like this either it's just how i'm appearing to you It'll be yeah, two different of, things. Yeah. yeah, well, it's the thing in itself, right? You know, it's exactly. different to the perception, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if we take that as a fact, then that there, I may even say that nobody sees the same thing in the exact way, or smells the same thing in the exact way, or mm-hmm. hears the same thing in the exact same way. Then we're either we're either open, we either have a you know, a relativistic sense of what is, or we have to say that the only way of getting to what is is to to think about things beyond our um, senses that are that are unique to our own and rely on something that could be universal, which I guess would be you know rationality. Yeah, I guess that's Plato's argument because he'd say that the only things we can actually know would be using reason because that connection to the form, you know, with the, the analogy of the true. sun. You know. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, seriously, like, a lot of times with these ancients, we just kind of try to understand what they're saying. And for good reason, because it's... Well, there's, but there's some contemporary, well, relatively contemporary examples of the same, people making the same argument. Like he- Hegel, for example making a very very similar argument in terms of <clears throat> that there's um the object our concept of the object right so i have a i'm having an experience of this book right, right? and so but i'm not having an experience of the actual book i'm having an experience of my concept of the book yeah that's, that's the kantian distinction of the right. thing in itself right. and, and the, the, the noumena and the phenomena yeah and so and so but but hegel is not um enthusiastic about the idea that there is a barrier between us and reality right and so he thinks that we can have access through the process of the dialectic of becoming aware of your existence as a knower and then aware of your existence as a knower again and so on until you arrive at absolute knowledge of the things in themselves so your concept of the object and the object are are aligned with one another and so it's it's very it's very similar to the idea of there being sort of and and he uses the term universal when say he says there's a there's a, 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 a this, which is this book, another book, which is this book, and another book, which is this book. And then there's the universal thisness, 
of say all of the books. And so I'm I'm just pointing to the sort of the fact that it's been the, used, the yeah. kind of very kind of similar. Yeah, go on, bud. No, I was going to say I'm I'm a bit unfamiliar with Hegel. I, I don't really know much about him. But so would Hegel say that we we currently can have knowledge of a thing in itself, or would he say that we're getting towards better knowledge and eventually we'll get to a point where we can uh, our perceptions will be equivalent to reality? So Hegel thinks he had knowledge of the things in themselves <laughs> and, uh, and, that there was, and that there was a process that he was encouraging everyone else to go along, which is his dialectic, mm. which arrives everyone else at the same position of having access to absolute knowledge. So it's a process. It's like a, it's a um, sort of a cyclical process to follow that arrives you um, at more and more concrete versions of the things in themselves until you arrive at the, till your notion of the thing um, aligns with the thing in itself. Whereas we were saying earlier, so I look at you and I have a concept of you or an experience or a representation of you, but it isn't you in reality. Yeah. yeah. So, so Hegel's idea is that having once I arrived at the absolute, my concept of you would align with all the ways in which you are. All right. Well, that seems a little, a little strange. I know the. <laughs> I thought the the latter would be a bit more defensible. The latter proposition of um, I've at least like McTaggart and other people have a lot of it's an it's an idealist thing. So I thought it might be right. Well, because he because he kind of goes the, the the point where um Socrates says that you can't have knowledge during life. You can only have it after death. Like Hegel goes off in a slightly different direction. He's like, now nah, I'm having it now during life. I'm not waiting till after I die. But how? But his his process is so you have to it's through the process of taking the concept that you have of this book, right, and its uh, negation, right, which would be something like um maybe the book's a bad example. Um oh no, the, its negation would be the understanding that um you're it's only a concept, right? So like you mm. you at first point of call you believe you have not I have knowledge of this book. Right, and it's I have the concept of this book, and I'm convinced that it's knowledge of this book, right? And then you, the negation of that is the recognition that no, it's just a concept of the book, right? And then the the process that he's asking you to follow is this this sublation, which is kind sublation. of synthesis. Well, yeah. So the the term he uses is sublation, which is or the German is Aufgehoben, I think, mm. which means to destroy and to keep. Mm. And so it's the idea of uh, so. And so this, he, he did this with, with, like, so if I point to this cup and I say this cup, and then in the next moment I say this cup, and the moment after I say this cup, right? In the third moment, if we just pause, it's true, right? But in the first two moments, now it's false because now it's this cup. It, the, the previous two this is have passed and it's no longer this cup. It's this cup then. No, you're right. And so that's when he kind of abstracts the universal this from this, from this cup. And it's the universal this that is sublated out of the contradictions of it's yeah no it's quite complex yeah I'm not sure I got rid of that but definitely. no so it's like it's the idea is you take take a concept um, an abstract concept it's negation right and you dispense with the particulars of them and you uh, synthesize sort of uh, a universal idea that encompasses. The, the meaning of the two. So the best example to give of this is on the um, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy's entry on Hegel, and they give the idea of um, being as the concept, mm -hmm. nothing as its negative, as its opposite, right? So being right. and nothing, right? So the opposite of, if you're being, right? If you're 
The opposite of that is not being, right? So nothing. And then the sublation process is the abstracting a universal uh, principle or idea out of those two concepts. All right, and so the, the example that they give is the synthesis part of it is becoming, right? So because you have, so if you go okay, from being yeah, to nothing, you yeah. become nothing. Mm -hmm. If you go from nothing to being, you become whatever it is that you're being. Well, become nothing is a bit strange. No, I, so yeah, no, I, yeah, no, I, I agree. <laughs> I mean, you become I, I agree. something it is, doesn't it is, exist. It is yeah. a tad strange, but, but so that, 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 that's just the idea. So mm. you have, the, you have this, the idea, the um, thesis, antithesis. Yeah. He doesn't use those terms. He uses, he uses something like abstract, negation, and concrete. So you have the idea, it's negation, and then you have a more concrete idea, which the and this is this is the the movement part of his process, right? Because the the concrete part is the um the part that arrives you closer to the idea of the absolute, which is the thing in itself, right? So you've dispensed with the unnecessary particulars of the concept. You have like a, a I was told off for saying this, but in my class, but a higher order concept, right? Like the, is closer to the like the form, let's say, to to, to speak in platonic terms. Uh, or what Hegel calls spirit or the absolute. Right. So, and then he would say that eventually by just doing this with everything, yeah, you would yeah. reach. Yeah, you just it. do this all the time. How is it possible to do that with everything, though? I feel like. Because you have to go completely insane yeah. um, and either <laughs> become a communist or a fascist and do loads of horrible things. So, yeah, it's. Uh... No, I, no, no, I don't. I don't think. I don't think he's. I don't. I don't think he's right. Like, um, I. Okay, but but that aside. Yeah. But... Sorry. Just... <laughs> well, a good digression. Good digression. Like, if we can agree that that through our senses, right? Do, do we all agree that through our senses, we don't have real knowledge of things like beauty, piousness, goodness, righteousness, etc. Sure, I would, I would agree with that. So then. How how do we come to get real knowledge of things if it's not like if he's not right that it's through death that we come to get true knowledge of things when our soul separates from right. the body then then how do, like because have you guys had this experience like that when you're able to like think about things and just completely like shut off like you you. I don't know if you've done this before, but you you like you meditate for like a long time, like an hour. Oh, one hour, right? Yeah. Right. Never done that long. Though. Or whatever, <laughs> like thirty minutes, whatever. And then suddenly, like you know, with just like, meditate and sit there, right, and and like completely forget about your use of your, you know, different senses or whatever, and block that out. Then suddenly you're able to like think very clearly for like that brief instant where you you you've you've let go of your, you know, your yeah, touch, yeah, yeah, your feel, I get that, your yeah. sight. I don't cetera. think I've quite experienced it, but you're I just similar. Yeah. Right. You're able to, have you had this experience? You're able to have very clear thoughts. Yeah, where nothing and, is kind of like intruding onto intruding, your mind. You know? Right? Have you had that? No. No? Well, he's just a lesser person than us. <laughs> 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 you're a stage below in the Hegelian dialect. Yeah, I'm more than happy with that. That's absolutely <laughs> fine by me. Um, but but like like like, you know what I mean, right? Like, and so, <laughs> sorry. Oh, no, carry on. Please. But I'd be curious for our audience to know if they've had this experience too. Um, but but. No, I'm serious. Like, yeah, it's not necessarily meditation. I think Medita no, not meditation. No, but where, were you, where were you going with that? You were, you were well, yeah, yeah, that's, point. yeah. Right. Well, well, that if that is true, then 
then it's, it, it seems like it follows that in some sense, like the complete and the, the ultimate and the permanent separation of your senses from, you know, whatever it is that is giving you that clear thoughts and knowledge has to be death. And it seems like there's, there's really only two options for death, right? There's either you lose everything together, everything is gone, or the body's gone, and that part of you that has that clear thoughts in the meditation is still there. Okay. And so it's either like that you have a perpetual state of even better meditation, or like like not not meditation because it's not only meditation, but that kind of like um, meditative state where you just have completely you know gone into a um a, a completely like pensive and reflexive state where, where you're not relying on sight or hearing or whatever i think actually you're seeing what the flow state kind of goes into this i mean you're still using your senses but it's kind of uh unfiltered there's no like there's no noise it's all going like right. straight but it's related to taoist ideas as well where it's like when you have access to the tower access when you're when you're with the tower you know you you go uh you you flow with a tower and you're you're free from thought and from but like worldly perspective but going back to like socrates's confidence going into death right like at the very least we can say is a 50 50 chance right right but, but he's but he's like but he's while I guess it's up to us as readers of Plato and the interlocutors in the conversation to decide whether they're convinced by his arguments for the immortality of the soul. He, at very least, at the very least, is convinced by his arguments of the immortality of the soul. So, in terms of his confidence, if he's if he's got these two or three different accounts as to why the soul's immortal, and he's doing his best to convince other people of those, then, well, that would explain his. Confidence, if he if he believes his, his own arguments. Well, but like, okay, like, arguments. have you guys, like, let's go, I'll use the flow state, because that seems to be something that you guys, uh, no, like, so, yeah, have you experienced where you go into that state where you're, like, so fixated and you have such a clear perception, and then you're forced to kind of just go back into, like, the world, let's say, and start using all your senses, and then the idea becomes less clear, and you're like, oh, shit, like, I had this such good idea when I was in this like completely controlled meditative state and I, and I was on to something and if only I could like stay in that but I can't just sit in the dark you know and like think because that's just not practical right that's just not realistic for my my life right have you had like had that experience where you're like you have such a clear thing and everything seems so clear but then you're like oh crap I have to go out and and you know walk to i have to go out into the light and walk to class and you know and, and whatever like make my food and eat because i have a body that i have to take care of and etc etc right um so i mean if socrates is really going through that and has multiple times and has really tried to exhaust the limit of that those experiences then in some sense right maybe he's like yes yes now i don't have to give a shit about my body anymore right i can i can finally break free and 
Well, no, but that's that's why he's happy. That's like that's the I, argument. Exactly. He, that's the argument yeah. he gives for why he's happy is that I I'm a, I get to be free of this thing that's been holding me back. But what I'm trying to say is like, ask you guys. I guess is, you believe it. Are well, you convinced? As I was saying, I think it's difficult, at least for me, to. I'd have to be very convinced. I I, I think generally the position for life after death should be agnosticism. Like I don't I don't uh, I don't quite understand people who are very adamant that you know that's the end when you die. It's just it's just it's the end. Like as well. Like we don't know. <laughs> Do you know that? Like, I don't know. Maybe. But sorry, what were you saying? It's certainly possible, at least, because in a way, we all have—at least I do—I kind of have this intuition that our our consciousness is kind of contained within the physical world by right. a flesh prison, to use a, a funny-sounding right. word. And there's at least a, a conceivable possibility of it being free from the constraints that comes from with being uh, right. extended. So it's in theory at least possible. Whether that translates to it, to it uh, being rational to believe it, is a bit more of a jump that you'd have to go through. Mm. I think um, I think beliefs are really important point um, because when you believe something. Whether or not it's true, right? yeah. put truth aside for a second. When you believe that something is the case, it is as if it is true. As far as, far, as far as you're concerned, it, has, it is as if it is true. And there's some really interesting... Well, I guess it's, you have different degrees of belief. Some things you'll be like, I kind of believe this, but... You no, know. true. But I, I, so it's an example for you. Um, a couple of examples. One is uh, uh, sort of hypnotherapy. Right, so the people have been hypnotized and convinced in this process of hypnotization that the the person who is hypnotizing them that their finger is a hot poker, and and then when they've touched the skin the art the skin on the arm of the person who's been hypnotized, it blisters. The guy's finger is not a hot poker. The skin actually the, physically the, the blisters. The skin physically blisters. All right, that's pretty. And so the, the finger's not a hot poker, but the the belief, poker? as in, you know, like when you have a fire and you have a piece of metal that you poke the coals with, and yeah. then the end gets really hot. And every now and again, you see, I don't know, donkeys being poked with it in movies like Pirates of the Caribbean. I've never... It's a big... Just like a metal rod. It's a metal end, stick yeah. that you've held in coals for a time, right? Fair and enough. so he convinces the guy that his finger is a hot poker, and when he touches his skin, his skin blisters. Because the like, and this is why I bring up the point about belief and Socrates is like his uh, psychological state at the point of his death, right? And because if you believe that something is the case, and I mean genuinely yeah. believe it, and and it makes up a part of your paradigmatic worldview as far as you're concerned, then your body psychologically and physiologically reacts as if that is real. So if he's genuinely convinced and in the belief of what it is he's putting forward his psychological state fo follows from his genuine belief if he, he genuinely believes it which, but, but it's also interesting right because socrates is supposed to be the person who like 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 he says the philosopher's goal is to come as close to death as as possible in life 
right? Which is to, to kind of live to the largest extent possible without the body. And so if he's supposed to be the best at this, right? At that, he was kind of known to be, you know, the, the, the mm. big cheese of philosophy, right? Um, then, I mean, and, and, and he is the one who like enters and is so sure of this um, death state that it's, it's going to be a, a pleasant thing for him. I mean, Well, no, I think because I, I I think the way he puts it is that you like in as a, the true philosopher spends his entire life getting ready for the point of death, right? And it's not because right. and it's it's not there is a part of it that's like I'm being held back by this polluting body, but the the thing that they're being held back from is truly reasoning about the forms or about reality right. as it is. And so, if you were to I don't know. If you were Socrates and say he didn't do philosophy for the first 50 years of his life, right, and kind of took it up in the last 20, right, he wouldn't have spent as long preparing his soul, practicing his use of reason, practicing his use of um, the logos to, at the point of death, go on to to do that continually in this free space where he's able to do it. Wait, so for Socrates, what would happen when you die if you don't prepare for it, like maybe Socrates is done. So you're just, you know, a, a random. What happens to the randoms? Well, so you so he, no, he does. Oh, good, go on. Oh, no, go ahead. No, so he does. He does give a few examples to this. So he says something like, if if you are uh, a drunkard, right, or a braggart, right, you would your soul would come back in the like in the, uh, in in a um, in a uh, in an ass, all right, or a <laughs> ball, right. Well, this just sounds like Buddhism, honestly. It sounds like exactly like Buddhism. <laughs> they say, you know, you have to prepare for death by meditating and reaching nirvana, and then you'll be freed from the, you know, cycle of reincarnation, and you'll yeah, samsara. Yeah, I think it's pretty. And similar then if you if you if you know you treat yourself badly, you're a bad person. You'll get reincarnated into like a, a dung beetle. Yeah, something yeah. bad. Yeah, I know. Well, he gives, so, he, gives yeah, he gives two or three examples like that. So. Okay, that's so, I, so, I think, so I think his idea is like if you, I mean, I don't know who he thinks he's going to come back as, right? Just like. Uh, I think I he thinks he's not going to come back. That he's going to live forever is the soul. No, I think he says that. that like, I think towards yeah, the end, up, he says, like, um... Is he coming back? Is he not coming back? Is... Right, let me... So, uh, when... This is the nature of the rivers. When the dead arrive, each in the region to which the spirit escorts it, they first present themselves in court, both those who have lived nobly and piously and those who did not. Those found to have lived average lives uh, journey to the Akiran and step onto certain things that serve them as rafts. And they, on these, they enter the lake. There they dwell. And if anyone has done anything wrong, they are purified by being punished for the wrongs, so are pardoned. And they receive honors and recognition of their good deeds, each according to his deserts. All those found to be incurable because of the gravity of their offenses who have committed e either many grave sacrilegious acts or many unjust and unlawful murders or anything else that is of this kind are flung by the fate they deserve into Tartarus and never step out of there. But all those who are found guilty of incurable but grave offenses, for example, those who in a fit of anger acted violently to a father or mother and spent their lives, for the rest of their lives regretting it, 
for those who became homicides in certain circumstances, must be banished to Tartarus, where they've been banished and have spent a year there. They search out, they, they, the search throws them out, sending the homicides to the cockatus and the father and mother beaters down the, I'm not going to pronounce that word. When they journey, when their journey brings them alongside the Acclusion Lake, here they shout and call into some, calling to those they killed, others to the, to those they injured. When they've called to them, they beg and beseech them to let them step out on into the lake and receive them. If they persuade them, out they step and the evils are over. But if not, they are sent to Tartarus again and from there back to the rivers. And this does not stop happening till them, to them until they persuade that those those that they wronged. For this is the punishment imposed on them by the jurors. But as for all those who are found to have lived exceptionally pious lives, they are the ones who are freed and separated from these regions inside the earth, as if from prisons, enter the pure dwelling above, and make their dwelling on the earth's surface. And each of these, and of these, those who purify themselves sufficiently with philosophy, live thereafter entirely without bodies, and enter dwellings fairer still than these. Yeah, fair enough. So that was forever. But forever. That's what I meant by entirely. Well, technically it wouldn't be forever, I think, if it's in the realm of forms. It would just be outside of time, so it's not. Right, that's it. Fair it's just, fair yeah. Enough. Well, no, So, I mean, I guess, yeah, either Buddhism is borrowing from him or he's borrowing from Buddhism. Yeah. But, I mean... Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because there is sort of a... <clears throat> Uh, sort of a divide in East and West Western philosophy with I think in the East they have a greater focus on phenomenology sort of like the individual experience and the West has more of a focus on sort of material reductionism and empiricism sort of a focus to look at experience like to look to the world to tell you about it rather than sort of a focus on the reality of your experiences um, so this is might be an interesting point of layover um, in East and Western philosophy I think we can even see that in religion, like Eastern religions generally are more uh, kind of based on the individual introspection and looking into kind of your relationship with nature, whereas Western religion is more about looking to, you know, the a greater being, which then gives you guidance for the rest of your life. So, yeah, pretty interesting point. I mean, look, there's no way to to prove either way if Socrates is right, right? There's no way. Well, yeah, I guess, what do you mean by prove? Well, I just mean... <laughs> I've got some hemlock in my bag. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 there is a way to prove it, actually. It's no. true, you raised a good point. <laughs> but I'm, I'm like, sitting here, neither of us are going to come to a conclusion that we're convinced one way or the other, hmm. right? We're just not. We can We can agree that, in some sense, the body's pleasures and displeasures inhibit our ability to really think about things and come to certain understandings of things. But what both of us, with all of us can't grasp or be, be convinced of is that after that, those pleasures and, and that those displeasures go away, that our capacity to, to think and reason and have knowledge is still there. I struggle with the idea. Yeah. It's not one I'm convinced of. Particularly. Yeah, I mean, me neither. But it could be, um, we are all 
uh, pretty amateur, I'd say, in philosophy still. Uh, Socrates must have a lot more experience. I'm sure even just, um, to be fair, I was saying it would be difficult to imagine me being so convinced of uh, that life would continue on. But to be fair, if someone is genuinely religious, even just that genuinely believes in religion, which probably not that many people are, a lot of people probably don't believe it that strongly, but if you actually are, you know, you should, in theory, be okay yeah. with dying. You know, if you're convinced you've led a good life, then you know, awaiting what comes next. So it's not, I'd say, I probably a bit of an overgeneralization. It's certainly, I could see how it's possible. If I were convinced of, of uh, God, uh, yeah, you know, had felt his presence in me, which is supposed to be the case for um christians mm. then that would give me pretty good reason i suppose to think that uh, life continues after that it's interesting that he never really mentions a divine being well yeah the conception <clears throat> didn't really exist back then the monotheistic conception aristotle was the first to kind of did it but that's quite a bit later. but they did have the, you know like zeus the greek the, the god yeah but the well, the Do they even like? Of gods. But yeah, they're not even like the. They're not like the creator gods. They're not like the people responsible to death. And I don't think Socrates. I don't think Socrates believed them. One of the reasons they killed him was because he didn't believe in the gods of the city. Not but could really. there be? Could we be like? Could we be divine, and immortal without there being a a a, a god or divine being or gods? Like, is that possible? Well, divine yeah. Divine mean, and immoral, did you say? What? So divine and immoral. Immor immortal. Oh, immortal. Oh, yeah. I mean, Socrates' own conception doesn't involve a god. It depends what, depends what Would that make us gods? It depends what you mean by divine. No, he doesn't, he doesn't make reference. I don't think the existence of Zeus or any of the Olympian gods have anything to do with his account of life after death. But, like, so many, so many arguments today about, like, you know, immortality and, and whatever, and life after death and heaven and whatever are based off of a conception that there is a, a benevolent, you know, being. Well, yeah, I guess that's the one that we're most familiar with growing up in Western countries. That's the, clearly the one that's, you know, that resonates the most with us and makes most clear sense. But I think it's certainly possible to have a less monotheist account of it. Mm. I mean, Buddhism isn't really monotheistic, and they certainly have an account. But, yeah, perhaps. So, so could there be no God, but still immortality? I don't see why not. Of the soul? Yeah. I mean, it depends what you mean by God doing annoying. Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. <laughs> doing annoying. I, I think God in terms of the, the, the Abrahamic monotheistic God that we're thinking right, about, right. I think that is possible. Well, then, 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 then yes, like if you, if you have a particular conception. But if we're, using, being... if we're using any kind of benevolent being in... in... Well, no, but I mean, like, if, 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 if what you mean by God is something like the ultimate concern of human beings, and that would include their souls, because presumably, because if we take the way Socrates has described it, that the what the, the, the what the soul is doing is engaging purely with reality once it's been freed from its earthly form, it still has a telos and a purpose and a concern, right? And it's right. it's it's thing it's still trying to do something. There's still a a thing it's trying to maximally achieve, and then it still has an ultimate concern, and 
<clears throat> that would be the thing that sits at the uh, sort of top of the hierarchy of values. Yeah. Right. And so that would be God. Right. If the 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 thing that sits at the top of the hierarchy of values, and if 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 there's no sort of monotheistic Abrahamic God or any other kind of God, and yet there's souls separately from living things, and they are doing whatever it is they're doing, be that in the Socratic or Platonic right. way of engaging with the forms, still they still have a purpose and an ultimate concern. So they're, I don't know, they'd be still oriented towards something. But then the so forms guess, must come from somewhere. Well, but, but the, I, I, like the point you made is that they're outside of space and time, so I think coming from somewhere is a, wouldn't make any sense to describe forms if they're outside of space and time. Yeah, well, actually, Plato's own account of creation in the, in the Timaeus, he uses like the, the Demiurge who can make the forms and shape them in a particular way. He has access to the forms and can mold them, but he's not the creator of the forms. The forms are still mm. you know, everlasting. And Neoplatonists, so, you know, the medieval Christians who mm. came after. It's like an intermediary between Yeah, the exactly. They, they take that to mean that, you know, man. The, the forms is it's God. Instead, God created the forms and then, mm. and so on. Interesting. Um, I do think, just really briefly, we should know that there is one more argument that he makes for the immortality of the soul, which is from opposites, which is like, in order to have something hot, it needs to come from cold. And in order to have something beautiful, it needs to come from something ugly, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? So in order to have something alive, it needs to come from something dead. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, and how does that demonstrate the immortality well, because, of the soul? <laughs> well, because in the same way that when you're dead, you come to being alive. Then when you die again, that thing has to then come back to being alive. Yeah, I think it's kind of like we can't make sense of the concept of being alive without, you know, being death. We can't make sense of the concept of hot heat without cold. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of the same thing, really. I see. Leads to the other. Mm -hmm. Can go back like that. I may be wrong though. Wasn't paying too much attention at that. I'll, I'll confess. Um. Okay, should we wrap it up? Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, I think so. Seems like a good place to call it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for having me on. This was oh, a cheers. very good, very good episode. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Matthew. Grazie. Um. And uh, we'll be back soon with another episode. And another episode. And then another episode. So, yeah. yeah watch this I space. hope to be on again sometime. And yeah. Yeah, absolutely. More than welcome. More than absolutely. It's been a pleasure having you on. Um, well, you. And uh, what else? Yes. Logistics. Comments. We need comments. Guys, every time we tell our viewers, comment. Please comment, comment, comment. And they never do. There must well, be some me, viewers willing to comment.
I must. We must have said something wrong-headed, stupid, and or, <laughs> or ignorant in the last half an hour. So there's plenty to comment. There's on. plenty to comment. Yeah, I'm, on. I'm sure we've made. We're not. We've made a lot of mistakes. Look, we probably look yeah, like an they idiot. said I was lesser beings earlier, and that's definitely wrong. <laughs> so anyone wants to jump on that, by all means, that's an easy one to. I go also for. said these guys were were beautiful. <laughs> true, men. true, true, true. No, true. don't contradict. And, and that's <laughs> also wrong. Yeah. So. so you know, please, please comment. Errors, errors abound. Um, Where can they find us, Athen? Well. Number one on Spotify, number two on Apple Music, literally everywhere you can get your podcast, you can find us, literally everywhere. And if that's not enough, you can go to our website and listen to the episode from there. At the website being? www, that was three, right? That was three. <laughs> dot the new agora dot org. Nice. Yeah. Yep, that's the one. Um, and literally, it's so easy. It says... There's a little thing at the top. Okay, let me tell you how, it is, how easy it is, right? You can literally just click on the image of both of us uh, in front of the old college. It's the first image. And if you literally just click on that, it takes you to our, our page where you can listen. But if that's not easy enough, then we literally have a bar at the top that says episodes, where you literally click on that and you can listen to any episode. Or you click on the one, if you want to watch it, that says videos. And you click on that, and you can watch the video. Does that sound hard to you? I mean, you lengthen the ex explanation a little bit. But you can also find a spot on there where you get access to our email address. So if you do want to leave a comment or come on and have a chat with us Look, about anything. They can do YouTube comments. Spotify has a spot where you can comment. We, we literally ask every... Spotify have a comment section? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Every episode, we yeah, have a little thing that says, what did you think of this episode? And you can type your reply. And, you know... So we'd, we'd greatly appreciate it. And we'd greatly appreciate it. Athen will stop berating you for not doing so, as and when you do. And, listen to me, you can submit articles to us. Like, if you've written something that you find very interesting and you're very proud of, you can submit an article to us and we'll publish it. We'll put it on our website for everybody to see. We already have three up there. So yeah, What was the third one? Uh, Pablo Mendoza sent his uh article on um on uh like uh something like neoclassical europe or something like that cool um that may not be exactly it but something related to that um so yeah nice. please do Sounds guys good. um and as for us we say sayonara yeah thank you very Thanks much there. take care of yourselves everyone Yes. And be well. Be well.